0: I'm going to start off with a question that kind of points out a lot of the things in here and then it kind of gives me an opportunity to wrap up something from last week that ties these two chapters together. So my first question is this, or question slash command statement as well, because the question is, did you notice all the action steps in this verse or verses? If you didn't, we made a little cheat sheet so you can just look straight at it and then we're going to come back to that title slide in just a second, but you got nine action steps. So nine things Paul writes and Paul says, you know, we talked about all this last, week. really, I mean, mean, maybe I should start with this. Did anybody read this and get like a good feeling about themselves or did you miss it? Because what Paul's transitioning to in chapter three right here is he says, if you're of Christ, then you're the elect. And if that don't make you smile and think you a step above other stuff in this world, then you might've missed a big portion of what Paul's saying. All right. So he says, if you're of Christ, then these are the things you should be doing. These are some action steps. You should be seeking things above. You should be setting your mind on things above. You should be putting to death what's earthly. You should be putting off the old. You should be putting on the new. You should let peace rule. You should let the word of God dwell. You should do everything in his name and you should give thanks. Nine action steps that Paul goes into right here. And I guess maybe a fair way of doing this, because here's the first thing I thought when I read this. So now we go back to the title slide. You ever read, read sections of scripture and you're like, there ought to be like a little warning tab before it. You know, like you watch those YouTube videos and stuff and you see somebody do something really dumb, really stupid, but like part of you is like, I think I could try that. So thankfully there's some of them, because some of them have probably been sued in the past, where they've got this little disclaimer, this little warning tab, and it says, warning, do not try this at home. Warning, this was done by professionals. Do not try you know, if you got your kid a new bicycle, don't you go out and try this trick on their bicycle because you're no longer young, you're old, and you can't <laughs> do it anymore. You know, there's there's, there's there's warning tabs. So for me, I think there, are, there should have been like this great warning tab that says, warning, don't try this in the power of the flesh. Because I'm going to tell you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and you try to do these nine action steps in the power of the flesh, you are going to be a miserable person. Because you can't do it. It is impossible for you to be able to do these action steps in the flesh. So the warning here, maybe where Paul starts this thing here, the very first verse, verse one, the disclaimer is if you're a child of God, then you can do these things. So really this morning, if you are not a believer, if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, then you should just be listening hoping you get the Holy Spirit. Because if you're to try to do these things without the Holy Spirit, man, you're going to be a miserable person. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are a child of God, if you are a believer, if you were one of Abba's children, then he's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit with the ability to do these nine things with a smile on your face, with, with a little bit of almost like spiritual pride. You know, I am the elect of God I, in a good way. You got, you got to keep it. You know, don't walk outside with your nose know held high to everybody. They'll be thinking, you know, I don't want to I don't want anything about what they got. So what I want to do here at the very beginning is just just like give me, give me 90 seconds. 90 seconds to sum up last week as we transition into this week. Because when we look at a lot of actions, I don't want to be a, be a church that's just telling people, hey, this is what you ought to be doing. This is what you ought to be doing. This is what." Ought to be doing. And I think sometimes when we spread the gospel, that's what we forget. We'll tell people about Jesus. But while we're telling them about Jesus, we automatically start telling them what they should be doing. Folks, if they're not a believer, you just preach Jesus to them. You know what I'm saying? Like you preach the Holy Spirit to them because until they get the Holy Spirit, if they're doing action without the Holy Spirit, they're falling back in that trap from last week of legalism because they're doing it with their wrong motives. So something that came up online, so I'll steal this from, from Abby and then I added a line to it. Anybody who follows it on Facebook, she, she summed it up in a really neat way for the law. And it says legalism is an uprising of the law from its original intent to get away with something the law did not intend to be done. And then I add it and also try to make us do things that it wasn't intended to do. So anytime we're using God's rule, God's law, God's truth, God's commands to either make us get away with something or to do something that it wasn't intended to do, it's legalism. Pretty easy way to do it. And if that's not enough, I thought of this yesterday. And and, and, and I hope this makes sense. I tried to put it in new words after going over to the deals and having a little highlight moment. Jeremiah looking at me like I was crazy when I said one of them. So I went home and reworded it a little bit. I said, in other words, without the Holy Spirit, it's legalism. So if we're without the Holy Spirit, the Bible becomes a law instead of a relationship. Does 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 that make a little bit of sense at least? Because if we don't have the Holy Spirit leading what we do, guys, then we're being led by the flesh. And what Paul is saying here in Galatians 3 is he's saying that old man, that flesh has got to go. The reason you used to do stuff, that's got to be gone. We've got to learn what it is to break bad habits. Now, without the show of hands, wouldn't we all agree that everybody, just a head nod, everybody's got a bad habit, right? Some bad habits aren't really that big of a deal, like biting your fingernails. That is no big deal. But if you were to ask my wife, she will tell you that is the most obnoxious thing in the world. She hits me weekly over this. Sometimes so much so that I want to hit her back, but I haven't yet. Just confession, right? You got to confess while you're you're talking about these things, right? But it's harmless, right? But it's obnoxious. Some bad habits are lovable, right? One of our boys, that labels it down to only two kids. One of our boys has a habit of humming when he's concentrating. (laughs) Evidently, there's adults that do that because they're being pointed to right now. So, Reese, you're not ever losing that habit. I mean, whichever one of you boys has that habit, you might not ever lose that habit. If he's concentrating playing the game, you can hear him from the other end of the house no matter how loud everything is. Mm-hmm. It's a habit, but it's lovable. Like, we think it's cute, you know? Like, we, we wonder, like, how long will it last? And now we know, thanks to Matthew, it will last forever. So, good, good. Boy, if you're scoring touchdowns in the NFL, just to humming it out. Mm-hmm. right so how about if you if you know somebody who maybe is a snorter when they laugh right sometimes that's kind of a cute thing if she's a cute girl she snorts when she laughs right so so we all have different types of habits some that are bad habits but harmless some that are habits but are lovable and then there's those bad habits that get real serious such as addiction whether it's a dominating sin like alcoholism, substance abuse, pornography, uncontrolled anger, anything that can dominate our life and then begin to ruin relationships. Because when Paul gets to this, well, for the end of us today, the end of the first half of Colossians 3, he's transitioning into relationships. And he's transitioning into action in those relationships. And anything that has a habit in our life that destroys ourselves, our relationship with God, and then our relationship with others is a problem that needs to be addressed. And I've, I've noticed this about sin, and maybe you guys can relate as well. I never understand how much power sin has until I try to get away from it. Right? You got this mindset of, oh, I can, I can get away from that. That's no big deal. I don't think it's that big of a deal. But then the minute you try to get away from it and you realize, hey, I need to change that, you realize just how powerful of a pull or a, or a push that that sin then has on you. So that transitions things a little bit different, right? So then it makes me wonder, and I just want to point out there's some good things with this. But it makes me wonder, like, why does God allow temptations to occur? Why does he allow temptations to be so strong? Right? So you guys are going to, we're not going to do a, a necessarily because I think you understand a lot of these words. So this could be a little different than a verse by verse and analyzing every single word as we go through into the main idea and the, the topic that we have here. Because as I look at all these temptations and I'm thinking, man, if God is God, if he is all powerful and he can do whatever he wanted to, then couldn't he dial down the temptation just a little bit? Or if nothing else, couldn't he up my strength to deal with the temptation just a little bit? Now, pause right there because I don't want anybody leaving here thinking God is tempting you because God does not tempt. Okay, God does not tempt you into sin. God never tempts you into that mistake. You don't get to get out of jail free card saying it's God's fault today. Sin is always a choice you make. James writes, and James says this in James chapter 1, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man. With evil, right? So then, what does God do? Well, God will lead you sometimes into a vulnerable spot. Now, I think that's powerful because when I say it, it sounds kind of weird. What do you mean God's going to lead me into a vulnerable spot? That doesn't sound like a, a good thing, does it not? Because if I'm going into a vulnerable spot, I want the Lord leading the way, right? Point proven. What did it say with Jesus when he got ready to go to the wilderness? It said he was led by what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where what was going to happen in the wilderness? Temptation. Temptation. So it's safe to say that God will allow us to walk into vulnerable spots. And yet, as as Jesus prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then therefore, if God is leading the way, we also have a way to be delivered from it while we're going into it. Right? So you got to wonder then, go back to my original question. Why does God allow this stuff to happen? Why? Here's, here's, Here's the first benefit. Temptation tests your loyalty. You can't truly say you love something until you've had to say no to something you desired for something you desired more. Right? Your relationship, the first time it gets tested, you know, and you have to say no to something else so that you can say yes to something you love more, that relationship is going to be strengthened. It's going to be a really good thing. It can look like a really bad thing, but it's going to be a great thing afterwards, a powerful thing afterwards, right? Same thing with God. By saying no to a temptation, we confirm, God, I love you more. I'm crazy about your stuff more than I'm crazy about the stuff of this world and the stuff that I thought I desired. God wants our passion for him to be greater than our passion for sin. Right? And, and that's what God's trying to do. So, so the second benefit it does, and I'm, I'm going to get through these because these aren't the main part of the, the sermon. I just want to make sure we're on the, same, on the same page of what God's doing right here. Second benefit is they transform our lives. Temptation transforms our life. God is taking us there because he wants us to get to a point of transformation. What happened after Jesus' wilderness experience? In the timeline, not... His ministry starts. Is that not a powerful boost into the next stage of his life? The The next purpose of his walk on earth? So sometimes God's gonna bring you through some stuff. He's leading the way. He's giving you the way to get out of it, or through it. I guess I should say not out of it. He's giving you the way to get through it so that you can get to your next phase that he wants to launch you out of. Because when Jesus comes out of that wilderness is when he starts preaching to the public, is when his ministry gets going. As he goes through that transition, as the men know, going through the book of Matthew, he's getting to the end and he's publicly now declaring what he's there for. Like it is a powerful transition that changes along the way. So temptation can transform our lives. God is taking us there because he wants us to the point of transformation. Why? Because God not only wants to deliver you from something, God wants to deliver you unto, uh, I'm sorry. God doesn't just want to deliver you from something. God wants to deliver us to something. That makes sense. Let me let me say it again, since I butchered it the first time. God doesn't want us. God doesn't just want to deliver us from something. He wants to deliver us to something. God doesn't just want to deliver you from sin. He wants to deliver you to Himself, to His ministry, to His purpose, to what He's doing. Right. And think about all the lessons you learn when you go through temptation. Man, there's some, there's some good learning opportunities that take. If nothing else, does not everybody as they go through temptation learn the ministry of grace? Huh? If you've been tempted and you failed, are you not thankful for God's grace when you come out on the other end of it? Right? Look at at what Paul said. And and talk about being happy with God's grace because we all deal with sin. We all deal in temptation, right? We all deal with habits. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Now, that's not a go out and sin more idea. That's just Paul understanding, like where I struggle and where I fall and where I make mistakes. God's grace is there for even more. He even talked about, Paul writes in one of his later letters, and he talks about He goes, man, I've prayed for this one area three times. Some of y'all don't like to pray for something the second time. Right? But Paul says, like, I've been praying for this. I've been in-depth praying specifically three times for this thing. And finally, God just tells me What this. My grace is all you need. <laughs> Sometimes just God's grace is, is going to be what you need, right? So, so here's where I want us to go. There's benefits, mind, temptations, all that interest is supposed to get you. Colossians 3. Three key steps to breaking bad habits. Three key steps to breaking bad habits. Notice I didn't say three easy steps because it ain't easy, right? Ain't nothing easy worth having. So three key steps. Number one. First step in breaking a bad habit that we need. We got to think clearly. Go back to verse one. Look at what he says. Paul writes, if you, so we're talking to believers, were raised with Christ, raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, which is Christ sitting at the right hand of God. What Paul's saying is this, set your mind, think clearly. What am I to think clearly on? He didn't even just say things that are above. He makes sure to understand like when you're thinking of above, I want to make sure you understand, think above where Christ is. Like he's, he's taking out all the, all the guesswork right here. If you're going to do anything in life, you got to learn that thing first, right? If you're going to be an artist, I have no art ability whatsoever, but if you're going to be an artist, don't you have to learn about the color palettes and how the lines work and how to shade things and, you know, just all the techniques and styles that go with it. If you're going to be a doctor, don't you have to learn about the human body? Hopefully you learn a lot about the human body. If you're going to be a mechanic, you have to learn about car engines Right, so you could write it down and sum it up this way: learning always comes before living, learning before living, doctrine comes before doing. If we don't have learning before living and doctrine before living, we fall into the trap of what Paul's talking about last week, where things become legalistic. Because why? Because we're doing it for the wrong reason. Now understand this: at the same time, here's what's kind of neat. We talked last week about the law having its purpose and its plan, and it did, right? So all those years, God's people were following this stuff without knowing why, right? Then when they realized why, it filled in all the gaps. Now, you and I aren't in that time frame. We're ahead of it, so we should have the gaps already filled in. So my fear sometimes for God's people in the church is this, and hear it. If Satan can keep you ignorant, he can keep you ineffective in your ministry. If Satan can keep you ignorant, he can keep you ineffective in your walk, right? Satan doesn't want you to learn stuff. Why do you think we have every service where we open, well, not open the service, but we we open ministry time or or preaching time with gathering and open the Bible? Open the Bible. Read from the Bible. Consider what the Bible says, right? Right? How many people have read Colossians 3 before? More than half of us probably, right? It's a little short letter. So if you're trying to read one book of the Bible, it's a a good one to pick up, right? Does that mean you never read it again? No, that means you open it every time and get refreshed by it, right? You get refreshed by the knowledge of God every time. Because some of the spiritual realities that we learn are things that are repeated. Some of the things we need are repeated more. So one of the things Paul repeats in this section that he has in some of his other letters is this. He said, you died. You were dead right? You were raised. There's really only four, I guess you call them four positional truths that Paul's repeating in this section. You died, you were raised. Now your life was with Christ and you appear with him in glory. He's summing up as briefly as he can, right? Positional truths about your identification. Because if you don't know about your identification, you're in a heap of trouble, man. Right? So think, think positionally about these things. All right. In fact, I wrote it down this way, and now i got a good illustration to go with it as I think, right? Life is what you're alive to. that makes sense? Life is what you're alive to. You talk to a little kid, and you tell a little kid, hey, I'm going to take you to Disney World, since that's where 30% of our church wanted to go today, right? <laughs> While you're there, I hope you're taking time this morning to watch online and not enjoy time with Mickey Mouse, but enjoy time with the Lord and his word, right? So, so is there, you think those kids were, were, were excited to go, right? I guarantee they were. You think they were excited the first time they got closer and they could see the, the big old gate of Disney World or big old bridge or whatever the heck that entranceway is called? Right? yes! It excited them because they were alive to it. And if that's not enough for you, let's go ahead and just, just go on up the age bracket here since we've got everybody with us, right? You talk to a teenage boy about a girl at school who's cute. Did they not come alive? Huh? You throw out a girl's name and, and they call kind it? Of, or if it's not that, let's get them a little bit. Of, they're all looking at each other and smiling, right? Huh? <laughs> Smile at the girls, not each other, boys, okay? So as they, as, they, as, they go through this, as they go through this transition, they get a little bit older. Then you start talking to them about a car. Do that come alive? Right? No, and it doesn't even matter what car it is. That's the funny thing. Everybody remember their first car? Huh? My first one was a Dodge. Sorry, Jeremiah, but I'll never buy a Dodge again because of that piece of junk Dakota. Now, I also acknowledge that junk of a Dakota was ragged out because I was a 15-year-old with a five-speed that drove it like it was a V8 even though it was a four-cylinder. All right. So I killed it. But man, you'd ask me, I'd have told you that was the baddest truck on the market when I was 15 and 16. Right. I got a little older then a Toyota became the baddest thing on the market. Then I wisened up and realized Ford's are number one and they should always be number one. So now I have them. Right. But think about that. As we transition, like you talk to somebody about they're excited about and they come alive. Talk to a woman about fashion. Talk to a woman about, you know, Stuff that she likes. I hate to use a, a general thing because I see all you ladies looking at me and you're like, it doesn't have to be fashion, Pass. Talk to her about cooking in the kitchen and cooking show. I'm just kidding. Please don't, right? Talk to a grown man about sports. Talk to a grown man about motors. Talk to a grown man about hunting and fishing and that kind of stuff. And they come alive. They get excited about it. The most quietest person in the room, you bring up a good hunting or fishing story, and what are they? Oh, let me tell you about one I got. Let me show you pictures of what I got. You know, that's the way we're out. We come alive to the things that we live to the things that we come alive to. So then the question transitions is, what made Paul come alive? Read his letters. We just went through three of them now. Jesus. Jesus, not just spiritual talk. He actually did this stuff. Go back to the book of Philippians we did last series, Right? He said, For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He came alive in Christ. Look back at verse 4 of Colossians 3 for today. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So I got to ask you, believers, is Christ your life? Is he your everything? And if he is, Paul's saying, then there's some things we need to learn so that we can make sure we're in the right identification with who we are. And the first one, as weird as it sounds, Paul says, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead to the old life. You're dead to the old Or your, your flesh doesn't dominate anymore. The old you has died and been buried. You could say you were publicly executed if you've been baptized. That's what baptism is in a, in a briefed up way, right? Like it's all about that public declaration, that demonstration of the old life being passed away and, and now being raised in, into a new life. But he's talking positionally. So as Christ is talking and and Lord is speaking through Paul, Romans chapter six, verse 11 might help a little bit. Paul writes and says, therefore, reckon ourselves, yourselves also to be dead to sin, but alive to God. So Paul's saying, not only are you dead, but you're alive. Now, if you're listening to this for the first time, let's put ourselves. This kind of goes back to that first time uh, Jesus was talking to the the ruler and he tells him what you got to be born again. He's like, what, what do you mean I got to be born again? You want me to climb back in my mother and pop back out one more time? Like, what What, what, does, that, what does that mean? Maybe Paul's audience is kind of thinking the same thing. He's like, so, what do you mean I'm dead, but I'm also alive? Like, I'm a little confused with what you're saying here, Paul. So Paul finishes it in verse one. He says, you were raised with Christ. It's the power of the resurrection, right? It's the, the strength. So you, you seek the things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand. Jesus conquered death through resurrection. So therefore you can conquer the death to the flesh, through the resurrection and the power that he's going to give you to overcome bad habits. He was raised, you were raised, dead to the old, alive to this new stuff. The problem is too many Christians get stuck in between crucifixion Friday and resurrection Sunday. We like the in-between style, right? And the in-between style isn't what we're called to. You're not called to be sort of dead and sort of alive. You know, if you were to walk out there, now today's a little cool, but if we were to walk out there in the summer, you think anybody in that graveyard is going to ask you for a drink of water? Huh? I hope not too. That'd be really weird. Right? If a drop dead gorgeous woman went walking by, you think any of the men going to stand up? <laughs> I <hope not>. No. <laughs> why does everybody get all awkward now? What's he mean? You know what I mean. Oh, the sugar coat, right? No, nobody's getting up out the grave and asking her for a number. Nobody's going to ask you for something to drink and nothing in between. They're dead. Their desires for that stuff are gone. Right? So what Paul is saying here is if to know the truth is this, the truth is this, we should be dead to that stuff. And this is important guys. And, and we, we look at this sometimes. We're like, man, this is just words on, on the screen or whatever. God reckons this stuff is facts. Amen. And if God reckons this stuff is facts, the problem then is when you and I don't. So maybe an, an easier, uh, real life illustration would be this. Think of a child that's adopted. Scripture talks about us being adopted into the kingdom, right? When a child is first adopted, does it change the way they look? No, you wouldn't know the difference. They look the exact same. I mean, ain't, unless they got taken to get a haircut before they moved into the new house, right? It doesn't change the way they look. It doesn't normally change their activities or their actions, at least for a time, right? But he's in a new family. He's part of a new family, right? He's been adopted into that new, new, new family, new community, right? Same thing with scripture. We've been adopted into God's family. So everything should be changing as time goes on. But when we first get there, it doesn't look any different. Take it even further. What if this child that was adopted was from one of the countries that still have slavery? They were the child of a, of a, of a slave family. But they've been adopted by a king. Now, when that child first comes into that family, how do you think they're going to act? They're probably act the same way they've been acted. They're not going to understand all that change right away, right? They're young, they're, 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 for lack of better terms, they're ignorant of the transition that's going forth in them. They don't understand that they've now got power. They've now got a great inheritance. They've now got new relationships. They have, they have all this ability at their disposal. You realize this is what God is trying to tell us. He said, I've adopted you into my family. You have all of this. And I want to make sure you grab a hold of it and understand it and use it in the right way. And you're missing out on so many of the blessings of God if you don't understand it And take hold of it. You're stuck in so much bad habits. You're stuck in so much addiction. You're stuck in so much stumbling and so much falling. And if you would just know this, that you were a dead, you were dead to that stuff. And now you're alive to this new stuff, your life could change drastically. Couple of words to think about. And then as we transition from one into verse two, right? He says, You were raised in Christ, which is a fact. You seek those things which are above, which is what we should be doing. Christ sent it right. And then in verse two, he says, set your mind on those things and not on the things of earth. Now, we don't get it in the, the English transition. Right. And I don't even want to sound smart English wise because I didn't learn half of what I learned English wise until I got out of school and actually cared about what I was learning and dove in and learned it myself. But in the Greek language, these, these words, they're not translated correctly for us today. All right, so we know he's writing to this group that spoke Greek, most likely Greek words. Greek language, these two words, seek and set, their rules, their commands. It's a command to do something, but it's also a present act of commanding. Meaning this, here's a better translation of of what should be written there, right? An accurate translation would be, seek and keep on seeking. Set your mind on and keep on setting your mind on those things of above. What, What Paul's doing is saying, part of this is persistency. It's not giving up. It's making a mental determination that you're not going to let your past failures, your past slip ups, your past mistakes, stop anything that God's got and blow anything that God's got for your future. You're going to keep seeking, keep setting your mind on, not wallowing. It's a mental determination. You failed. So is everybody else in this room. Matter of fact, we always talk about, always use the illustration, especially with the boys. I use Michael Jordan as one. He was cut from his high school basketball team. I I use Babe Ruth because everybody's like, oh, he's got the most home runs. He also got the most strikeouts. All that's physical stuff, Right. You realize Albert Einstein, says we're talking about mental stuff, Albert Einstein was kicked out of school? Not only was he kicked out of school, he applied to get into another school, and here's what's written by the teacher. You lack interest in your studies, you're not good enough. Albert Einstein, right? Goes even further. Not only was he kicked out of school, when he, once he got kicked out of school, and he, and he failed in uh, Switzerland uh, an entrance exam to get into another school, it said that he went on to... Uh, Get a job as a, as a house tutor. He got fired for not being smart enough to explain stuff to the people he was tutoring. Right? Failure after failure after failure. This is the same guy that has, what is it, E equals MC squared? Right? What in the world allowed this guy to keep, what allowed him to become a legend that we all know the name of in, in the mental world, right? He kept seeking. He kept his mind, he, he kept setting his mind on, on different things. He kept getting up. He, kept, he didn't wallow in his fast to feed, he, he kept going. What great thing does God have for you to do in the future if you just keep going? If you just keep, keep on keeping on, I guess is a way you could put it, right? Instead, we listen to the lies of Satan. Satan tells us what? Oh, you can, you know, Satan's real dirty in how he lies too. Because the first lie he tells us this: oh, you can do it. Everybody's doing that little sin. Right? Like, it's not going to be a big deal. So then you do it, right? You fall because he even, might even tell you, like, God, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. You're still a good person. So you do it. What's the very next lie God, t- or Satan tells you right after that? You're a horrible person. You're never going to be forgiven. You notice how he transitions like so quick every time? Like you're never going to be able to get out of this. You you can't stop doing this. You're never going to break this this trip that it got you from, right? Maybe what Paul's saying here is a a little little hack tip for getting through this stuff is remembering the end game. What is our end game as believers? The kingdom, right? So so what he's saying is, is seek the things above. Seek the things of the kingdom. And if you keep your mind focused on that kind of stuff then the stuff of this earth, it won't sidetrack you. Number two, keep from breaking a bad, or uh, step two, breaking bad habits. After you think, you got to act decisively. Act decisively. Look at verse five. I love that Paul always has a therefore, by the way, in his letters. Because he's such a great teacher. Really, as you think about the stuff that he's teaching and what he's doing, he'll always teach us things. He'll teach us doctrine. He'll share stuff with us. But then there's always that therefore because he wants you to apply what you're learning. therefore, Put to death your members which are on earth. Fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Because these things, that's the wrath of God that's going to come against the sons of disobedience. In which you yourself once walked and once lived in. But now you yourselves are to put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Take it all out of your mouth. Later on he says, don't lie to one another. You're, you're putting off the old. You're putting on this, this. old deeds and getting rid of them. Put on the man that's been renewed with what? Renewed with knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There's no Greek or Jew or any of that stuff. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian city, slave or free or any of that stuff. But in Christ, all is all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, suffering. What he's saying is once you've pondered your position, once you've you've thought about your position, and now you need to start practicing your position. So ponder your position and then practice your position. Act decisively. You've fallen down, now determined to get back up. determined to be different. I think sometimes the longest journey any of us can take is the the inches from our heart to our head. Because we'll feel something in our heart for a long time maybe, or we'll feel something in our head thinking, right? That's the conviction, but it's a long time before we let that penetrate and change our, sometimes too long. And I don't know why we wait so long to move and act on things that we know, right? Because once it's in your heart, it should be moving to your feet, Maybe we should make it even further, right? Theology ought to become biology. Theology ought to become neology. Because if you're going to be something, you sure better pray about it on your knees, right? So so all this stuff that, that Paul's getting to here, here's what we're to act on. Let me get this main thing he's saying. Verse five, put to death. Put to death what? The members which are on earth. Verse eight, put off. Put off what? Anger, malice, blasphemy. But then verse 10, put on. And he gives a list of behaviors of things we're to put on. So we're to put to death, put off, and put on. Commands that involve what? Your will. Your will. An element of self-control. If you're going to break bad habits, you've got to get some self-control over stuff. And if you're not willing to get the self-control over that stuff, man, you're going to be in a world of trouble on it, right? Why? Because your choice becomes a habit. Your habit becomes an addiction. Your addiction becomes a lifestyle. We have to rewire our brains because our brains need to change. Verse 5, therefore put to, notice what he says, by the way, I need, I need to go back to verse 5. Verse 5 on the screen, verse 5 in your Bible, right? Notice what he says, put to death these things. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, you got to kill it. No, tell him like tell them right now, you got to kill it. Because we're foolish enough, here's what we do, we're foolish enough to think we can compromise with the flesh. Oh, well I'll set up this boundary and I'll set up that boundary and I'll be okay. You can't compromise with the flesh. You you notice everything for God, the answer is always what? The cross? It's got to die. It's got to die, right? So what Paul is saying here is is you got to kill that stuff. You don't play with it. You don't compromise with it. You don't let a little bit of it into your house. You kill it. You get rid of it. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Also, another sermon that's only for believers. So there should be a little disclaimer tag in front of that, right? Warning, if you're not a believer, don't try this stuff. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus is speaking, and what does he say? He sounds crazy. If your right eye causes you to sin, you should just pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to to sin, you should just cut it off, right? Was Jesus pretty clear with how he thought we should deal with stuff? If your eyes cause you sin, you get rid of it. If your hands cause you sin, you get rid of it. Is, Is Jesus promoting amputation here? Or is Jesus trying to have a really dramatic effect on the way we view stuff? I mean, if you were this crowd and Jesus says, you ought, to just, you ought to just pluck your eye out. He don't say go to the doctor and get it surgically removed. He said you ought to pluck it out. That's gross. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's like kind of nasty. Right? He says you ought to just cut your hand off. Don't, don't be scheduled no surgery and all that. You just, you just cut it off yourself. You know what the problem is? If, if you are if you bound up in that kind of sin, you could cut off both hands and still figure out a way to steal something. Right? Why? Because the problem isn't your eye and the problem isn't your hand. The problem is your heart. We have a heart problem, not a hand and an eye problem. And when Jesus is speaking and he shocks us and it's gross, that's how we ought to view sin. It ought to shock us. It ought to gross us out. We ought to realize just how destructive it truly is. What Jesus and Paul are both getting at with this section is saying, you ought to radically deal with sin. And if you're not willing to radically deal with sin and cut off opportunities immediately, you're going to get in trouble. What did he tell Timothy? You ought to flee youthful lust. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee. He, he didn't say what? Well, you ought to try to stand your ground with it and see how close you can get without crossing the line. Is that not our mentality? Sometimes we want to see just how close we can get to sin, right? Before we fall, we want to see how close we can get to the edge of the cliff and look over to see just how far the fall is, right? What if the mentality was the closer you got, the more likely you were to fall? Wouldn't we stay further away from the edge of the cliff then? Think, think about Joseph, Potiphar's wife, book of Genesis. That dude didn't mess around, right? He's talking to a which we know is a beautiful queen, right? She grabs a hold of him and says, I want you. What's he do? He ran. He ran so hard. Don't miss it. He ran so hard. He was most likely naked when he ran out of there. Now you're thinking, man, if you were naked, shouldn't he have stopped? No, he kept running. Because even if you're naked, you run away from that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like he didn't play around with it. The best solution sometimes for you to get away from a bad habit is execution, not execution, (laughs) evacuation. I had my E words a little mixed up. I apologize. Maybe you should execute it too. I don't know. That might solve some of your problems as well, right? Evacuation. Please hear me because some people, we, we get in this mindset. I've been there, so I'm speaking to myself, right? Had to tell myself this this week, literally, right? So please understand, I'm with you. We worry sometimes, not about execution and that kind of thing. This is what we do, though. We say, well, I don't want to be rude. Right? So we carry on a conversation longer than we should have. Right? Don't we? I'm telling you right now, hear me loud and clear. I give you permission. Be as rude as possible. Get out of there. Right? Get away from it. You're allowed to be rude if it's going to save your soul. Right? Y'all, y'all didn't get that. Y'all didn't, either didn't like it or you didn't get it. One of the two. I don't know which one, but I'm telling you it works, right? Paul tells his audience about these, these two categories, and here's what I really love. What Paul does in, is, is he separates these lists for us so that we can see how they transition, by the way. All right, so if you look back at verse five, I'm gonna go from five and then verses eight and nine where he lists these two lists, right? This first list, verse five, it's, it's what, we, what we feel and what we do. You feel it, then you do it. The second list, verse eight and nine, is what we say. right? So you got to feel. Then you do. Then you end up saying. right? You go back to the first list. Verse 5. It's a perverted love. The second list. Verse 8 and 9. It's a perverted hate. The first list is dealing with sensual sins. The second list is dealing with social sins. It starts inside with a the desire. Then it makes its way outside to others. Campbell Morgan has a quote that says this. And he calls them this. He says. These are called sins in good standing. Stuff that people do. And we go every day. And we say. That it's okay because everybody's doing it. It's not okay because everybody's doing it. It's not okay because it's popular. Amen. It's not okay because it's socially acceptable. Right. Paul makes this list, fornication and cleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness. Uh, verse eight, ring, uh, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Sounds to me like 90% of our TV shows. Be it, we keep filling our head with this stuff and expecting not to make its way out. You want know the easiest tip for overcoming a bad habit? Keep as much distance between you and the bad habit as you can. Keep as much distance between you and the sin that you struggle with as you can. Solomon, he writes his son. Let me talk about how wise he is, right? He writes his son in chapter one. <laughs> this is great, right? He says, if sinners entice you, you do not consent. You do not walk in the way with them. You get new friends, son. What if we were to look at our, look at our boys and tell them that and make sure they understood it? Hey, if your friends are enticing you to sin, get new friends. Get away from them. Because if they're enticing you to do stuff now, I can't imagine what they're going to entice you to do later. Right? Maybe we need to look at some adults and tell them the same thing. Maybe our problem is that we keep hanging out with the wrong people and we keep using it as an excuse to fall into stuff. And if chapter 1 didn't make enough sense for, for, for uh, Solomon to his son, go to chapter 5 of Proverbs and he starts talking about a prostitute. And if you read chapter five, maybe you should go back and look at it. It's some good stuff, right? But, but he talks about his prostitute and, and they're prevalent back then, right? And, and the temptation we know is there because he's talking to a young man, right? And he says to his son, this in chapter five, remove your way far from her. Don't even go near the door of her house. Matter of fact, don't even walk down her street. You know what he's saying in, in, in new age terms? Don't even walk by the magazine rack. Don't even cut on your computer, throw your phone in the trash can. Don't even have a conversation with them. Keep as much distance as you can keep. You want to break a bad habit, keep your distance from it. Right? Amen. Until you do that, you're just going to keep on falling and, making in the tra- and getting the traps, man. I, I read something this week. I didn't even think to use it this way. But there's a, a, a dig, archaeology dig. They're digging up pharaohs in Egypt and I don't know where they come up with this stuff right back then. So they say this thing's 4,000 years old. Anyway, come to find out they buried seeds with these pharaohs, thinking that like they could plant something into the afterlife and, and whatever. That wasn't even the point of it. I just thought that was humorous. But what they noticed was this. When they dig them up and the sunlight was exposed to the seed and a little bit of moisture from the air got in it, a few days went by and these seeds actually began to sprout. So you got 4,000-year-old seed that is sprouting because the conditions were made right. What sin have you buried deep down within that all it's going to take is a couple conditions to be made right that it's going to sprout up and bring forth fruit again? Right? Don't you allow the conditions to get brought back up. You keep it buried deep down. Don't you dare excavate it. Don't you dare let it out. Don't you dare expose it. Because the minute the conditions get right, the minute there's a little bit of moisture, the minute there's a little bit of air, a little bit of sunlight, Sin will sprout its way up again. Let's go go with something positive. Verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. And this is Paul's language for so many places in the letters that he writes, right? It's a picture of a person changing clothes. He uses one in other letters where he talks about a, a soldier, right? You take off your clothes and you put on your armor. The battle's over, you take off your armor and you put on clothes, right? You come home at night, you put on PJs right you get up in the morning you put on work clothes put the clothes on to prepare you for the job you got to do right was well, he has he has he described it in Colossians three he says put off the grave clothes he, he's talking about Jesus here right Jesus Jesus in in the, in the, in the grave clothes and he's saying you're going to put on some glory clothes those old behaviors are grave clothes you, you they're dead they're filthy when Jesus got up from the grave right he left his grave clothes behind didn't he you remember that section he didn't he didn't grab them old raggy, filthy rags full of blood and take them with him. He left them. He folded them nice and neat for some other stuff too, right? Some other illustrations. What about the prodigal son? What's one of the first things that happened after the prodigal son and daddy get together and they hug and they're celebrating? What does he tell them? Man, go get this boy a new robe. Get that stench off of him, right? Get, Get that smell off of him. Put on some new clothes. What I love is Paul's going from the defensive position to an offensive position. And, and, he, and he's being practical. The best way to deprive your old nature is to cultivate a new nature. If you hadn't filled yourself with something new, you're going to revert back to something old. Does that make sense? It, it, so as he goes even further, I guess you could say the best way to fight it is to get engaged in something totally different. So let me ask you, what have you spent most of your time walking in the spirit? What have you spent a greater portion of your time in the word? What if you spent a greater portion of your time in prayer? If you did, here's a promise I can make you you won't be dominated by the flesh. You won't be dominated by bad attitudes and bad thoughts. Chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul says, Walk in the Spirit. He says, If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's a promise, folks. If you walk in the way of the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. You know, they have machines for taking air out of bottles. Seriously. I was sitting there reading. I'm like, we, we complicate things sometimes when I was little. This, this is where my brain went. I watched this machine like sucking vacuuming. It's a $10,000 machine and it can only do a certain number of bottles before it has to have so many upgrades and all this kind of stuff, right? But I'm sitting there scratching my head. I was like, $10,000 just to suck the air out of a bottle. You know, another way you could do it. I do it every time I got to rinse a glass out. You just sit it under the water spigot, and cut the water on, and let the water fill out. You know what? They ain't got no room for air if the water fills it up. I'm serious. This is where my brain goes. And then I think about us as God's people. What if we were just to cut on the spigot, his flowing promises, his flowing grace, and just pour it into us? Then there'd be no room for none of the mess, would there not? Get so full of something that there's no room for something else? Man, I don't need a $10,000 machine. I don't need a complicated way of doing it. I just need to let the spirit fill me up so there's no lust of the flesh left. So I think clearly, I act decisively. Third thing, I got to live accountably. I don't know if accountably is a word. It's underlined in red. Maybe I spelled it wrong. All right? Some of y'all, if you type, you know what I'm talking about. Look at verse 12 and 13. Get to the end of this thing here. Or the end of this section. 12 and 13 says, therefore is God's chosen ones. Guys, I don't know how you can read that and not smile, by the way. I said it at the beginning. I got to say it again. He's calling you his chosen one. His elect is what uh, uh, Brian's translation says, right? Therefore, it's God's elect, holy and dearly loved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you're also... forgive them. You notice all the one another's in that section. Just go back and look at it. If you, if you highlight with a pencil or underline with a pencil, it might stand out to you, right? One another, one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. You got to complain against one another. Make sure you understand that Christ forgave you, but you put on love so that you can have a bond that unites one another. One body, all these one another's this group. Are we not in a group right now? There's something special about getting in a group of like-minded people. Even more so, there's something about being in a group and understanding whether you want to point it out or not, but understanding everybody in this group has struggled in some area of their life. Some are still struggling in certain areas of their life, right? You realize the potential that's in a room full of struggling people? It's powerful. It's a good thing. I don't mean it to sound like negative. The potential that's in a group of struggling believers means this. It means that sitting around you, you have encouragers. Sitting around you right now, you have cheerleaders. Sitting around you right now, you've got reinforcement if stuff goes bad. Sitting around you right now, you've got support. Sitting around you right now, you've got mentorship. Sitting around you right now, you have teachers. Sitting around you right now, you have life examples. Right? And now, I, as I'm sitting around this group of people, Paul talking about bad habits, right? Dominating habits. He's also talking about, man, we need help sometimes to fight those addictions. We need help sometimes to be encouraged to overcome stuff. We need help sometimes to stay the right path. Paul's saying you you sometimes just can't do it alone. And you need the help of other people. Right? And I wonder how many times Paul actually says this because it's in a lot of his letters. But please understand, you are not designed to do it alone. You're not designed to. I tell young couples sometimes right before, right before they get married, like, don't you dare be afraid to reach out when, when, when life sucks, right? The honeymoon phase is going to end eventually. I promise. Don't be afraid to reach out when That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of faith because it's a sign that I'm doing things the way God intended me to do it. God tells you to reach out to groups. He commands you to reach out to like-minded people. He commands you to, to seek out help when you need it in a good way. Solomon, they say he was the wisest guy ever, right? at the very beginning of his journal about life and things that he's realized. The chapter right before, he writes about all the money he's got and all the power he's got and and all the wives he's got. So he's got all this stuff. But here's what he says in chapter four. He said that two are better than one because they got a good return for their labor. Yeah, you can do more, right? If they fall down, the other's going to be able to help them up. We need help sometimes getting back up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to help him up. Woe to the one that can be overpowered. But praise God, there's two that can help him withstand. Then he goes into the next section about keeping warm and, and all that stuff. And sure, I guess you could apply it to the, the physical warmth of laying down with somebody. But is it, is it not, not a good warmth of life when you find people you can be around that just make you feel good? It's so much more than just being warm into bed against a cold air at night, right? It's that, that happiness of relationships that, that bring that forth. Then he goes in and he wraps up the last section as he's saying, he said, you know what? Even the cords of two strands though can be easily broken. That's why when a girl braids her hair or when when ropes are made, he says, but it's the cord of three strands. Because what should be uniting those relationships more than anything else is not the good food, not the relationship, not the jokes, not the games, not the drinks. It should be Christ. You find your deepest, most intimate, strongest relationships with those that are bound in Christ and like-minded like you. Because it's in those relationships that will provide the strength to get through stuff. It sounds weird, but I wrote it down this way. We should almost invite accountability. Now, I didn't, again, you go back, I didn't say none of this is going to be easy. I also don't say that's going to be nice and feel good either. Nobody likes accountability. Nobody likes for somebody to look them in the face and be like, man, you were wrong. Right? Nobody likes to hear that. But when you invite accountability, here, here's what happens. You get the power to withstand temptation even more. You're, you're like, here's something I've learned. If you confess something, about, you ain't even got to beat temptation yet. But if you just confess about whatever's tempting you, whatever bad habit you got, it automatically lessens its power over you. Just confessing it. Maybe that's why I say the, the, the first sign to, to victory is admitting, right? When you admit that you struggle in an area, it loses its power over you instantly. It automatically begins to change. The, the result, we stand together with people, we support one another, we break bad habits, and then what do we get? It says if we do this stuff, we get the peace of God that rules our hearts. The peace that surpasses all understanding that the world outside looking at don't even understand. Is that not something all of us should want? Do we not all want that ah oh, feeling? Just a peace of God coming on of us? Let the peace of Christ, verse 15, let the peace of Christ to which you were also called into one body rule your hearts, therefore you will be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell amongst you. It promotes singing. It promotes reading. What does it say? Hymns and spiritual songs, singing God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What if we did everything in our life with this kind of attitude? Now I'm not talking about being sinless. You're never gonna be sinless. But I am talking about sinning less. Huh? I'm not talking about being able to constantly do those those nine things, but I do think if we would at least have those nine things as things we should be doing, we'll get a little better. The habit won't at least control us. It's safe to say that bad habits are probably like weeds, right? They grow without even effort. Talking about the the deals yard yesterday, and then remember back when when we first moved to give Ans and we had like, whatever dirt we could buy cheap so some of it was nice dirt and some of it was just clay and some of it was sand some of it was wash fill we just mixed it all together and had a makeshift yard that we we made up right took forever to get grass to grow but you know them weeds them weeds i didn't plant no weeds not a one i got hundreds of dollars in grass seed right Probably way more than that. I probably got $1,000 in grass seed, right? Just to, just to make a whole pretty green yard. I don't know why, because all that does is promote more work, right? Because then you got to cut it, and then you got to, that's a dumb idea. Why plant grass, <laughs> right? That's a whole separate argument. I didn't mean to go there, right? But what I did mean is this. I didn't, I didn't plant none of the weeds. But you know, all of them grew faster than the grass. Huh? What about spiritually in our life, guys? Are bad habits not like weeds? Without effort, here's what I'm trying to get at, not even a plant, but without effort, they'll grow. Without effort, they'll grow. And we're, we're foolish enough sometimes to just excuse them with what? Oh, that's just part of being human. Yeah, that's part of being in the flesh, but God tells me I'm in the spirit. God tells me the flesh had to die, right? Those stubborn habits, they, they, they mastered me for a little while, but they don't have to master me forever. I can break free from them. And, and, and please get out of here. Here's another thing we do in church sometime that gets on my nerves, right? We, we, we talk about this cycle all the time. Well, you get a, a moment of victory and then you'll fall again. How about today? Let's make a commitment that we're going to do better than taking one step forward and two steps back. How about let's actually plan to be successful and not plan to have the failures? Maybe that's why we keep failing in some of our stuff is we go ahead and throw in the failure into the plan. Is that not true? Well, you know, this is going to happen. Why does that have to happen? Well, because, because, because why? Well, because well, it doesn't have to happen. We let it happen. We sometimes even plan for it to happen, which is even worse, right? The, the key to victory is to set your eyes on the master and keep him on there. Maybe we need a little bit of dog theology, right? I'm serious. Let me give you a little dog theology real quick. This is good. I had a bulldog. Greatest dog ever alive. Gideon was getting close and then he messed up last week. Mm-hmm. So now he's the dumbest dog. All <laughs> well, it takes is one mistake at our house and you're done. All right, so how it goes. But, I, but I, <laughs> I had a bulldog. This is no lie. Fat little took her. Y'all, y'all know bulldogs, right? Look like they could eat the whole world. Right, just, just rolls everywhere and they don't care. You know, some girls, they get rolls and they care. Bulldog don't care. Bring on the rolls. I'm, 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 I'm sexier the more rolls I got. That's a bulldog mentality. That's not the theology I'm talking about. I don't know why I went there. Here's the theology I'm talking about. Here's dog theology. That bulldog, this is no lie. I can take my steak. My sister would get mad at me sometimes. We're still doing all right. I can take my steak, cut it in pieces, and send it on his nose. And he would not touch that steak until I told him he was allowed to. I'm serious. I promise you. It's amazing. Right? And I took some training. So, dog theology you gotta have some training. Right? And then I realized, and here's the truth, right? I realized something as we were getting puppies and getting <coughs> dogs and stuff. I said, Man, I ain't never had a dog that could do what that dog could do. And then it hit me, I've never taken the time to train another dog the way that one was trained. Right? So there's your first lesson. Second lesson was this. And here's what here's what I realized watching other dogs as haters now <laughs> kind of transition and trying to train Gideon into somewhat sit and stay. Right? But what I realized is this. That bulldog would do that because he would keep his eyes on me the whole time. He didn't even look at the stake, Right, That steak could sit right there in front of him. That steak could then sit on his nose. I wonder if he like clogged his nose so he didn't smell it. I don't know that part. right? <laughs> but I'm serious. His eyes were always on me, the master. And then I realized in dog theology, if we would just keep our eyes on the master, if we would keep our eyes on his stuff instead of looking at all the stuff that enticed us all around, we could sit and stay as long as he told us to as well. We could say no when we were meant to say no, and then when the master wanted to reward us with that piece of steak, we could gobble that thing up, right? Keep your eyes on the master. Say no to bad habits. Think about, train your mind. Train your thoughts. Train your heart. The heart is evil now, but if you could make that trip from your brain to your heart and start getting it converted over, man great things could take place let's pray father god we love you we thank you for this morning god god we thank you for what you inspired paul to write lord god to this letter to a church lord god that had opportunity to struggle and sin all around and he wanted to make sure they didn't fall god we've got so much opportunity to sin all around us so many bad habits and temptations that come upon us daily So, Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you make us hungry for your stuff, more hungry for your stuff than we're hungry for the stuff of this world. God, make the stuff of this world just make us sick. Lord God, let us find our only satisfaction in you. God, help us to keep our eyes on you and your stuff. God, help us to fill our our hearts, our minds, our entire bodies, Lord God, with your stuff, with the things from above and not the things from this earth. God, give us the strength to kill those bad habits so that they're not even around anymore to entice us. In your great name we pray, amen.